Good morning, I'm Frank Kaufman, president of the Professor's World Peace Academy. Welcome to the PWPA Scholars Interview Series. We're excited to have with us today on the program Robin Lebron or Robin Lebron Anders. Robin writes in the area of world religion. Her books received the 2018 Best in Class DeRose Hinkhouse Memorial Award for Excellence in Religious Communication. That's given annually by the Religion Communicators Council. Her book, Finding Common Ground Between Science and Spirituality, was awarded the DeRose Hinkhouse Award of Merit in 2019. She was also recognized internationally by the Books for Peace Commission in 2019 for those who have distinguished themselves in the activities of peace and solidarity. Ms. LeBron manages Interfaith Professionals on LinkedIn, which has over 5,400 members. She writes, she's written articles for United Religions Initiative, Harmony Interfaith Initiative, the Interfaith Observer, and many other outlets for uh, writing in the field of religion and interfaith. Please join me to welcome to the program Ms. Robin Lebron. Robin, hello. Can you hear me fine? Hello. Yeah, welcome. Glad to have you with us. Yes, I can hear you. Oh, that's great. That's great. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. I've looked forward to this for a long time. And this is a great opportunity because you've just released a piece of a little bit of writing. And I think you're causing a stir already with it. Uh, the name of the piece is called do you think we'll ever get it right? And the uh, subtitle or down at the kind of a tagline says, a tiny book with a huge message. And I think I think in this little, it is, it is a tiny book. Um, and I think you really already struck the waters pretty turbulently. Uh, we'll, I look, we'll get into that in a second. I just wanted the listeners to know about the fact that you don't write only little tiny books but sometimes you write very big books <laughs> when they um when they read uh what we ever get it right they'll come across your brief mention of uh of a prior work that i think is probably the like your main thing you've created in print can you say a word or two about that effort Yes, my first book was a reference manual to 40 world religions and faith practices. Mm. And it was, it, you're right, it is huge. And in fact, it was so, it was so huge that I thought it was daunting to a lot of people. So I broke it into two volumes. Uh, now they're called 20 world religions and faith practices. The second volume is 20 more. And uh, my purpose is to share the beauty and the teachings, uh, the core golden rule um, teachings in all these world religions so that we could grow closer together. Very good. Very good. And most people don't think of the world's religions as 40. How did so many come to be the focus of your effort there? Well, some of them are denominations. So oh. that's why I said religions and faith. 
practices. Okay. But it was it was designed it was designed as a teaching tool to open people's mind about the different faith practices out there. And I the first twenty were chosen by the number of members in the world, the okay. largest memberships. Mm, mm. Yeah, we actually taught a course, and it took us a year to get through those. And after that was done, they said, oh, we want more, we want more. So the second 20 was based on faith practices that are misunderstood, uh, very unusual, you know, to give you a whole different kind of spin on world religions and faith practices. Excellent. So this original book with the on two volumes with 20, 20 practices in each of the two volumes, this was originally taught to a study group in a in a Christian a Christian congregation or where was it taught? Yes, it was uh, I was married to a pastor and I was trying to open the congregation's worldview. And so it was an Episcopal church. And we taught it once a week for two years, basically. Very good. I spent a long many years of my church attendance in an Episcopal church. And I think that generally speaking among the denominations, it's, it, it might be one of the better Christian denominations in terms of openness and curiosity and willingness to learn and not too narrow vis-a-vis overreaction against or, or, or fearful of other religious learning. Was that your experience also? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to disagree. <laughs> Next time I'll invite you to come teach this congregation, then you'll have, you'll have something to offset your experience. Okay, so there you have it. There you have it. Uh, maybe it's just East Coastedness rather than a Pacific. Good. All right. Well, so- uh, perhaps uh, the congregation I was in was very old. And so there was a, a lot of people which I will fondly call the old guard. And they really didn't want anything changed. And, uh, you know, they weren't as open to the new ideas that would appeal to young families. And, you know, it was just. The way it was, you know. Mm, mm, mm. So I dealt with it. Well, very good. Unfortunately, the courses we taught, the people that attended were not the ones that needed to attend. In other words, we were preaching to the choir. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I get that. Very interesting. Very interesting. Of course, my congregation too is a lot of elderly and uh but i think maybe new yorkers or i don't know maybe urban i don't know but they just they just keep learning they never it's the big thing in cities i think is to just keep learning and learning but uh good um getting on to getting on to this work because you you do trace that you even mentioned your experience with your congregation there as part of part of the trajectory and course of your interfaith experience and what's bringing you to this a set of very serious challenges in this work will we ever get it right and um as as a person who has a lifelong investment in interreligious life and interfaith pursuits and part of part of your writing here uh is the challenges even of that itself and the 
kind of parochial elements that creep into even interfaith as an enterprise. But usually people in interfaith part of, and, and you're significant, uh, you're significant in the field. You've been prominent. Uh, you, when I joined the, the interfaith professional LinkedIn group, you're the, you're the head of it? You were the head of it or are? Yeah, I manage it, yes. Yeah, and in your book, you mentioned it existed. You joined it at one point. Is that correct? It existed already, uh, and then you joined it? Yes. Then, go ahead. Yes, I joined it in, yeah, I joined it in 2013, and there was about 900 members. The gentleman who started it was a kind of a computer geek. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was just all of a sudden he reached out to me and he he'd been reading my posts, obviously. And he said, I want you to manage the group. I just don't have time. I see. And, you know, there was like a, a hundred membership requests that he hadn't dealt with. And I so, see. yeah, I just kind of hit the ground running and it, and have been doing it ever since. And uh, you're humble because under your management, it rose from 900 to 4,500 or 5,400, I think. No, actually, 5,400 presently in that group. Yes. Yeah, it's, an incredible, it's an incredible platform, an incredible voice, and, uh, and, a, and a big responsibility. I know that membership in, in groups, Facebook or LinkedIn and stuff, there isn't the, the hot commitment, but, but still the ideals have to have to unfold somewhere and it's a it's another huge work of yours but what i was about to start with my first question is that almost all people in the field you know there's the big names there's the vendleys and the swings and the robert morton of the of the uh, cathedral in northern manhattan there's always a story there's always an autobiographical element that is part of the narrative of the roots of that particular individual that becomes or rises up to become a, uh, an interfaith, known interfaith name and figure. And I think you must also, there must also be that in your own life and narrative, in your upbringing or how you were raised religiously in your household, or how do you, how do you come by that, how do you come by that you've that this became such a, a passion of yours? Well, I was raised in the Air Force, so we traveled a lot. I met lots of different people, different religions, different races, you know. And children are very open. You know, you don't meet a child on the playground and say, What religion are you? Yeah. And so I approached life with that chi childlike openness. And I was not taught any differently. As I experienced different organized religions, I found myself frustrated that they kept trying to, you know, create dividers between people. And that was just not my understanding of God, never has been. And so the older I got, the more I realized that we really need to learn to love each other like the Bible tells us to. And mm. how can I go about helping that happen? Okay. Were your parents, did they raise you in a church or not at all? 
No, my mom was, uh, you know, she was very strong in her belief of God. In fact, she was a, an orphan. And she told me when she was a little girl, she'd go to her her sort of secret place and she'd sit on the rock and she'd have arguments with God about why she was going through this. You know, and she was little and she still believed in God, even everything which she was going through. Mm. But because we traveled around so much, there wasn't always a specific denomination available close to where we lived. So we went to lots of different ones and that may have played into it as well. Okay. Okay. So, so your parents, they were believers, but the constant movement didn't really allow a fixed bond to a single denominational identity. So you, you grew up in the presence of faith and of faithfulness and of appreciation of religious life, but not such that it was narrowly identified with a kind of a constant and unchanging membership or, or named identity, something like that. Is that, does that sound right? Or? Exactly, exactly. Mm, mm, mm. So that's, yes. that's what set you up to be naturally affirmative of faith as a thing and, and trust that it's in lots of places. In order to bring the listener into what this conversation is, is genuinely about your book, Will We Ever Get It Right? Is it fair for me to say that, to sum it up in a, in a in part, uh, sentence one, sentence two. Sentence one, in, association with interfaith activity can itself become just like being a member of a religion itself. A, sentence one. B, to the extent that interfaith, I, interfaith membership or interfaith identity becomes like that, then, then the whole enterprises, enterprise loses its, its very, it starts to de, uh, decline from its capacity to bring about the, the, the growing harmony and cooperation that by nature it should define itself as, as promoting. Does that sum, sum up the thread that runs through this book? How w- will we ever get it right? Yes, exactly. I mean, I've met so many lovely people in the interfaith movement, but as soon as you start putting walls up and saying, you know, we're more advanced or we're more spiritual or we're more, we're the newest flavor of the month, and then you've created another division and it defeats the whole purpose. So, I mean, that has kind of made me sad. So, mm-hmm. and, and so. And you've invested almost your whole life, as you just described, in huge ways, accomplished huge things, quadrupled or quintupled the membership of of a vibrant interfaith. In the LinkedIn group, you've created a a review of, of 40 faith traditions in which you labored through even resistance to try to make those appealing and known and then you come to a juncture in, in your career or history, which suddenly you see that the very enterprise itself starts to calcify and starts to imitate or emulate the very reality about religious life that it was meant to address. A couple of things occurred to me as I read. One is, one is that you have a string of 
very sweet and very fond recollections and accounts of significant kind of saintly and premier individuals who have had an impact on your life. It starts out with an elderly Mormon missionary. Correct? I'm, I'm correct there, yes? Uh, yes. Mm -mm. Actually, she was a young woman. She was probably about 25, but she was very frail and just, you know, the closest I've come to ever meeting an angel on the earth. Mm. And then as, as the course of your interfaith efforts and life progressed, you continue to meet exceptional individuals who embody the ideals and the virtues that should be the definition of the work itself, right? You mentioned a handful of people along the way. Yes, mm. absolutely. And then simultaneously throughout the book, so, so we meet these fine people and it's exciting to meet them on the pages of your writing. We feel drawn to them, even though we may never have met them. And at the same time, it's, you're traveling through a string of institutions, all of which disappoint you. So there's a constant flow of individuals which inspire you. I mean, there's plenty that, plenty that disappoint you, no doubt. But, but th there's constant individuals which inspire you, and there's constant institutions which disappoint you. I don't know if you saw it that way, but this a little bit how it read to me. So that, that Episcopal church is mentioned in your book. When after you spent three or four years there killing yourself, somebody says, somebody says to you, do you think you're ever going to join? <laughs> right? Or something like that. Isn't that on the page on your book? Yeah. Yeah. So, so institution yes. after institution, and then you go through, I know you've been through the whole nine in the inner, in the professional interfaith world, the Parliament of the World's Religions, NAME, which stands for North American Interfaith Network. And you've been through, you know, naturally in your field, you've been through all the, all the big names and all the big activities and all the big meetings. And, and now these themselves, so it's, it, they're, they're starting to line up behind the institutional disappointment along the way. So what I wanted to kind of bring, ask you to ponder or speak on is, is it institutions per se that where the problem lies? Not interfaith, but even if we were going to make a little sandlot baseball club, as soon as we buy uniforms and have to sign up, then that's going to, you know, is it, is it the institutionalization <laughs> of it? <laughs> is that the problem? So that, you know, you're going to meet some young mom who's going to, toss underhand get on the team or something you know you're going to meet saints along the way uh, on everything and is it is it just institutionalization that is gonna sooner or later be harder harder to manage because the reason why i ask that is because then then the religions themselves also that's that would also be their problem it's not that it's not that do you see what i'm saying is that is that the the problem that that you never found an institution ah yes well not exactly i'll tell you what my i was trying to get across in my book is that the messages you know the beautiful messages within the faith practices are there 
regardless. And there are beautiful people within the faith practices that are also there. Yeah. But unfortunately, sort of laziness and mediocrity and stuff like that has worked in. So there's those out there that are going to disappoint and a person can't hang their faith on these individuals that are not carrying the torch properly. That is one message that you have to find your own faith and your own anchor and not judge a faith by somebody who's in it. Number one. Number two, I also found some exceptional individuals that kind, loving, open, but they all had these unconscious lines in the sand that they were not aware of that they could be open and loving and caring for everybody, but dot, dot, dot. Right. right. And, you know, and it was kind of surprising, surprising to me to see that happen so many times. Yes. And so that's another thing I was trying to make people aware of is, do you have a line in the sand that's keeping you from being totally open? And that was one of the things that started to bother me about the interfaith groups is that their lines in the sand are not even unconscious. I mean, they're blatant in some cases. <laughs> when I was at the Nain conference, um, I heard people saying really rude things about uh, Scientology. Scientology is in my book. Yeah. And so I've researched it. And, you know, it's not my cup of tea, but it's above my pay grade to judge them and to say rude things about them in public at an interfaith activity. I yeah. mean, to me, that is the absolute antithesis of interfaith. And so, you know, that made me sad that people are saying they want to be involved and they're nice people. I've met lots of nice people, but they just aren't aware that they are nice to everybody except some certain small group that they don't like for whatever reason, whether it's a life experience or lack of knowledge. You know, my little chapter on the looking through life with a flashlight. I mean, that tries to discuss how people see what they see. You can't help what they see. They only have this small circle of light and that's how they're judging everything. Mm, mm, mm. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's tremendous. That's very helpful that that by going into the kind of, well, I'll call it the belly of the beast, maybe the center of the flame, the, the, lightest, the lightest part you can find, which is those people who are dying to love everybody. They're in the interfaith movement itself, going to the best place you can find. They're spending a thousand dollars to fly to Melbourne or here or there. They, they, that's their whole self-definition is, loving everybody they can find. And then you get, you walk by someone in the, in the past the coffee break, who's taking it out on some religion that that's, that's the one they, they refuse uh, access to this big breath that they pursue in their life. And I wonder if, yes. I wonder, I wonder yes. if you identified just something in human nature that would call for an inquiry into what makes that decline if everybody's if everybody's prone to have a line in the sand even even the you know the uh, cleanup batter you know the head of you name the organization uri or whoever you know, and then you find out that he or she has this little secret group they hate then you might be talking about something that is common to human nature and then 
would the interfaith or, or interfaith enterprise be responsible to come up with a, what addresses that? So possibly being a Baptist, it, it, it doesn't assign itself the mission to not have lines in the sand. Possibly, possibly being a Baptist, having lines in the sand is no big problem. But to be, the, to be in Maine or to be in the world parliament, having lines in the sand should technically be a problem. So then is it those groups? Are they the ones responsible to, since, since that is one of the kind of something you shouldn't have, wouldn't they be responsible to come up with regimens or practices or address that particular thing that is found in all human beings? Let the Baptists worry about, you know, not stealing and not coveting thy neighbor's wife. And, and maybe the interfaith people can come up with their, what do you do about that? You know, what do you do about that sin? We all have our lines in the sand. Yeah, well, I, um, I don't think a lot of people realize they have one. I think that's the problem. Like I said, some of these people are just really, really nice people. Yeah. And just as a kind of a quick example on academia, there's been a conversation about this little book and yeah. there was a guy and he kept, you know, making comments about God and, you know, why am I bringing God into it if I'm trying to fix everything and blah, blah, blah. And I finally said, well, you know, it's quite obvious to me that you have an unconscious line in the sand about any confirmation or conversation that includes a supreme being. Mm, mm. And then he replied and he said, well, I wasn't aware of any line in the sand, but he, then he admitted that he was an agnostic. Mm. So although he was trying to be his his comments were rude he was trying to be constructive but he had a line in the sand that he hadn't really thought about you know yeah. and i think that's part of the problem and that's one of the reasons why i wanted to do this to help people see you know you can be a really nice kind loving person and not realize that it only goes so far and for us to really have peace we have to find those lines in the sand and erase them mm. that's a great uh, statement and a great work robin honestly speaking even just to shine a light there because the interfaith movement has been around now it's getting quite old and there's a lot to critique about it but it still holds a bright appeal to to many who are just learning the the joys of openness and learning about new traditions. So it's still serving a very good part on its, on its outer frontier. But deep on the inside, how its veterans are going to be vigilant about ourselves and about our biases is a, a, it's a, great, uh, a great, great point we're, we're bringing into a group and, and you speak with the authority to do so because you've invested so constantly in that world. We're almost gonna wrap up, but I was wondering if before we do on this matter of addressing our shortcomings or, or where our openness closes down, what about the areas that are really problematic where we're somehow compelled or obliged to in fact be hostile to things that what the way I wrote it in my notes for a question was 
no matter how broad you define yourself, there's going to be somebody that's going to stand outside of your minimal ver of your minimal basic virtues and demand that you accept them too. Does does that for, do, do you get what I'm saying? It's like you say, well, we can all agree. Yeah. That, okay, you got the question. What what do you think about that paradox of? Yes, I accept everybody, but I really somehow child sacrifice. I can't quite bring myself around to wanting them also at my conference. Or, you know, there's always a line, uh, and it has to do with the question of good difference versus good and evil. And I was wondering if you had any kind of thoughts or reflections about this paradox. Well, that's that's actually a very difficult question because... You know, if you just talk about can we have universal morality and, you know, not judge and try and love our neighbor as ourselves. And but you're right. There are some people that have a different sense of morality. And for whatever reason, they think a certain action is OK because that's what they've been taught. And we think, oh, no, this is absolutely not OK. And I have to draw my line in the sand there. So I don't know how you solve that problem because you're right. There are people that have completely different upbringings and, and completely different cultures and uh, that all comes into it as well. But, you know, part of the problem is that chapter on letting God be God. Yes. I mean, I, you know, if I saw somebody that was child, child sacrificing, I would call the police, but I wouldn't personally you know, do anything to them. It's not, it's, again, it's above my pay grade. So in some cases, you, you do what you can. If you see evil being done, if another person being hurt, we definitely, you know, if we are moral, then we're going to stand up and defend somebody who's being hurt. That's my definition of morality. I agree. I know what you're saying. And it's it is difficult. It's a but you have to, yeah, you have to let God work out some of these things because right. we can't. Right, right. It, it's a real challenge and it should be a constant point of conversation and should be worked out in a serious and sophisticated and give the conversation all the time it needs to be had. And the, perhaps these types of things are part of what should be the the nature of interfaith meetings is the hard questions, the question of, of evil. I mean, traditionally, religion has a position vis-a-vis -vis evil, whereas the breadth of acceptance is always challenged by even the concept of, of that which is unacceptable by any measure. And I think you've taken a far step with this let God be God and and have and have distinct ways of dealing with things that doesn't require your violation of your desire to love all people it's a good uh step uh, one of the things that comes up in your book is parts of the interfaith community that have like you mentioned this fellow and in, in the in the academia group that the mere mention of god is becoming too narrow or too <laughs> on, on interreligious conversation. And so you mentioned a session at the parliament that you recently attended, I guess must have been in Toronto, I think, right? 
What was it? What was the name of that session? Yes, it, it was. It was in Toronto. And well, about, I can't remember the exact name, but it was something like, is God dead or is there a God? Something along those lines. Yeah. And this was a surprise to you, what the popularity of the session or, or that it, do you, can you speak about that, about kind of direct certain directions in which you get interfaith to such an extent that having any religious belief at all becomes the wrong thing to do? Yeah, I mean, that is definitely a problem when you say, well, you have to accept Scientology, then I can't very well go and say, well, you can't accept Satanism. And although, you know, that's what I feel. Uh, but the problem that I find is that the more, I don't know, taking God and faith out of the movement seems to be a direction that they're going. Mm -hmm. as though you have to take God out to be totally inclusive. Yeah. And, um, you know, that breaks my heart because no, the religions aren't perfect. And yes, there's been many religions that had horrific times in their history by, that were brought on by zealots. But in general, the teachings of the, the different faith practices are beautiful. I mean, the message God has given our our prophets over the centuries is unbelievable even traditional african religion it's like fifty thousand years old they got the mm -hmm. same message from god mm -hmm. so the message is good but humans have just kind of messed with it too much and i'm i'm afraid that's what's happening to interfaith as well that humans are getting in and they're stirring the pot too much and affecting the effectiveness affect the effectiveness <laughs> if that makes yeah. sense yeah um it's do you is there emerging in the interfaith community a kind of a roster of good guys and bad guys like it's wonderful to it's what you know you it's wonderful to love every every uh bang on the log of the yoruba religion but god forbid you should ever think the pope is all right or is there any of that in your experience that somehow the mainstream conventional plain old everyday say evangelical believer who loves his country and they're not the big popular ones uh, at the kind of uh, you know chapel across the street from the UN or so forth is that there's a certain type of religious group that oddly it's the mainstream religions that have a greater trouble finding acceptance in the broad interfaith uh, community is that at all the case or not so not in your experience no, I think it is. I think the more conservative faith practices are struggling. In fact, a couple years ago, there was an article written, and I can't remember who off the top of my head wrote it, but it was called, you know, Who's Missing from the Table? Mm. And it was quite openly talking about how evangelical Christians were not even invited. And if they did show up, like at that name conference, I had a real, a young conservative Christian come up to me after my comment and thank me because he had never really truly felt embraced or, or included. Mm. And so they're not, you know, they're including the ones that are fashionable almost. And that's a bad sign to me. Mm. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you've really hit it in a neutral and loving way that we all have our blind spots, we all have our lines in the sand. No one is 
deliberately trying to be a bad person. And if only our community, the interfaith community, could start to acknowledge that and then start to take it seriously and start to look at ways that we can address it and get get better and overcome it. What do you think? Uh, it's kind of your kind of if that could be like your final well, word. Or I, and also, uh, before yeah, I, I mean, that's uh, what I uh, hope for that it will. I was Sorry. just going to say, I was just going to say, since I'm inviting you kind of to wrap up, if you're, you're very beautiful and insight about the flashlights at the end of your book, if, if that's going to help in your, in this response also, please. Well, I, I had hoped that this would um, make some people, both interfaith and non-interfaith people think and ponder and you know, kind of think about it, you know, am I doing this unconsciously? Interestingly enough, I've sent my little book to several people to read it and comment on it. And some agreed with me, but they were afraid to come out of the closet and uh, say they had agreed with me, you know, <laughs> because it would affect their, oh. it would affect their position in the interfaith movement. Oh, and I that's, see. that's sad, you know, so we have to start, yeah, we have to start there. And as far as the flashlight, I mean, I truly believe people are walking with whatever light they have in front of them. You know, this circle, I called it a circle of light. And the people that are not comfortable moving out of that circle of light will find other people that have the same exact vision that they do and they'll stay with them. And other people, the uh, interfaith people are, they may each have their own circle of light. When they walk together, the whole field of vision grows mm. and you can see more and you can walk easier together. Mm. And mm. so that's, that's what we need to do is, is share our vision of light with others and, and hope that they find it interesting and say, oh, that looks kind of cool. I want to learn more about that. Mm. And, but you can't teach people with words. It, it has to be with actions. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful vision. It's a beautiful vision because, you know, you could kind of see the end of the movie with all the flashlights kind of lighting the entire field in a way. It just, um, it just takes the humility and kind of the, like you said right at the very beginning, the, a kind of childlike longing to know more from the one who has something you never saw before. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, Robin, thanks a lot. We, we uh, overcame a lot on the, on the tech side to make it, and it's been very enriching for me. I've, I, I, hope, I hope you felt the chance to get some of your thoughts across, and uh, I hope we have a chance to do this again. Yes, I, I really enjoyed it. And, you know, my whole purpose is to try and help people, giving them, you know, the seeds and the pearls that I've found that will help them along their path. You know, we all have to walk our spiritual paths alone. We have to learn ourselves, but we can help each other along the way. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thanks a lot, Robin. Have a blessed day. Thank you.